Yo, welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Um, today we have a very special show. We have Eric Yakes. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Maybe I totally butchered it. Um, I'm really excited. But before we get to that, I want to give a very special shout out to who powers the show? SwanBitcoin.com. It's the best place to stack sats. Um, automated Bitcoin savings plans, instant purchases, serving clients of any size, $10 to $10 million. They incentivize self-custody. They don't even have a sell button, which I think is pretty dope. Um, anyways, guys, check out SwanBitcoin.com. I also want to welcome my guest. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. I always get so nervous with the pronunciation, pronunciation, pronunciations of the last names. I butcher them all the time. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of crazy people in the industry too. So there's a lot of unique last names. Um, but yeah, no, it happens all the time. But you hit the nail on the head. Awesome. So, dude, it's been a minute. I you first came on my show a long time ago, and. You didn't have that many followers. I think you just dropped your book. Um, then I saw your career completely because that's how it is, man. You you bring up the proof of work in Bitcoin. Work speaks for itself. People acknowledge it. People see it. And it doesn't matter what your skin color is, where you're from, right? People judge you just on your work, right? And I think you were telling me at the time that you were living at your mom's house while you were writing this book. It was a long time ago. So what has changed in your life has everything changed? Has your perspective changed? You've went on the Peter McCormack podcast. You know, that podcast gets hundreds of thousands, if not millions of listens and views. Talk to me. Talk to me about your experience. Yeah, man. Um, it's been a ride and I, I completely agree. I was definitely amazed at uh, just how, you know, the proof of work aspect of the industry and just how quickly people will bring you up and how quickly people will point towards good work. And um, yeah, you know, when I when I was writing the book, I was just like thinking through scenarios. It's like, okay, you know, like I'm, I'm going to self-publish this thing. I didn't really want to go after, you know, a publishing deal or anything like that. I was like, if I do that, I know that it's, you know, number one, they get a lot more control over the book and they're going to make it something that is going to be much more easier for them to market in a lot of ways. If I even got the deal and then there's all the legwork that you have to put in just to get there. And I was like, I don't, I don't really want it to be that. I just want it to be whatever I want it to be. And um, and if it works, great. And if not, you know, at least I'll have a really clear understanding of what I think about the industry. And then to my amazement, yeah, the book just took off. And, uh, and it's been awesome. It's been a ride. I've met a lot of really cool people in the industry, um, been on some cool podcasts. And, you know, I think I've, because I'm trying to think the last time I was on the show, that was probably right about a year ago from right now. Um, and, you know, I've just been meeting people in the industry, trying to put together an idea. I spent a good amount of time um, trying to build a company. And I think I really quickly came to the idea that on kind of the fun side of things, there's a lot of room for people to be allocating investment to the industry in the right ways. And it's something that I've enjoyed doing. So I've been working towards getting that set up. Um, and hopefully that'll be something that comes next year. And other than that, man, we're still in mom's basement. I'm still holding out and kind of investing a lot of what I have into this idea. And, um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm holding out until I get a little bit more financial security around that end, but that'll probably be a next year thing too, as well. So thanks to mom for, you know, holding out with me. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you are not in that situation yourself. I think there's a lot of people specifically the millennial generation. You look like millennial to me. You look like my age, roughly my age. Um, look, the dude, the, this fact, the fact speaks for itself, man. The, the, their own data sees that in the beginning of 2020, the housing prices in the United States just went completely parabolic. And the reality mm -hmm. is that if you're under the age of 35, you're significantly poorer than the generation that came before you. And it's because when they printed all this money, the only people that benefited from it were the financial elites, meaning people that had the means to save in assets, either equities or real estate, therefore benefit from asset inflation. If you were just a regular Joe working for cash, working for fiat, and you didn't have the luxury to, you know, to put some aside, the reality is that over these last 10 years, when this QE experiment started in 2008, 2009, your future was stolen, your time was stolen from, right? And I think that that's why we're all here. And I know that there's a lot of people 
in your situation. But anyways, I want to go back to your book, right? It's called The Seventh Property. First of all, it had one of the best explanations for proof of work that I've ever read. And I'm not just saying that because you come on the show. It was it was extremely well descriptive. I even I, the first time you came on the show, I had to read. it. I was like, dude, this is insane. And it was actually a screenshot from BTC Sessions, Ben, that pointed it out. And I was like, this is crazy. So, Eric, what is your background and what originally inspired you to write an entire book? Because that's definitely not an easy undertaking like it's it's not something that you just wake up you're like okay let me write a book right it's something that you clearly had to sacrifice time you had to sacrifice effort in order to do that so what's your background and what inspired you to write this book in the first place yeah totally man um you know so i i come from the traditional finance world i was working for a private equity fund um and i'd been you know when i first heard about bitcoin that was in like 2015 and i wrote it off i didn't understand it very well at all but i was just like i you know based on my initial assessment there's no way i could really value it and um you know from my background i had a lot of like this value investing framework i was a cfa so um you know a lot of what you learn in that curriculum doesn't really necessarily apply it's not that it's wrong it's just you don't know nobody's ever really thought about you know what makes a monetary good valuable and um you know, so it was like it was a few years and then I had a friend who was a lot more tech focused. He was like, this thing's really cool. It does cool stuff. And he kind of probed me to start looking into it more. And um, and then once I came around to realizing like, oh, this is a solution to central banking. That's when I was like, OK, this is really interesting to me. I was well aware of all the issues with central banking. and I always had more of like a libertarian view of the world um, and, you know, believed in free markets. And then once I got hooked, I was spending a lot of my free time just reading about Bitcoin. Um, and it, it was a huge decision for me to jump into all this. You know, I I was always very career focused. I getting a job in private equity, I worked very hard towards starting when I was like a freshman in college and I was there and I was doing it and I was like, look, I'm not totally in love with what we're doing. I didn't realize that I wasn't, um, well, I didn't realize going into it that I wouldn't be, uh, I wasn't quite as passionate about it as I thought I would be. And then like one day it hit me over the head and I was like, dude, you spent all this time reading about Bitcoin. You should just jump into this industry. And you know, at that time, like I owned my place. Um, and I was kind of like, okay, well, look, if I sell my place and I move back home, I could, you know, that gives me a few years runway to kind of get things figured out. And, um, and one day I just decided to say, fuck it, I'm going to jump into the industry and put it together. I think what I wanted to prioritize um, was, you know, I wanted to do things right. I think that a lot of people um, or often I'll see, you know, there, there's ways to uh, gain a following um, and generate revenue that aren't probably good for you in the long term from like a career decision if you're you know want to be just like an influencer or something and like the media side of this was always appealing to me um i feel like often really like analytical people aren't as drawn to media aspects and that was always something that i felt made me a bit unique um and that you know i can also do that kind of stuff i can be a normal dude have a conversation um as well as get into the weeds around the analytical side so i was kind of like okay um, that's something I want to do, but how do I really want to do that? And I was like, well, you know, I want to, I, I, I want to understand this stuff as best as I can. I don't want to go out there and just start talking until I really like actually have my head around it. And step one was really just getting deep into my understanding of Bitcoin and the industry as a whole. I think when I was first heard about Bitcoin before I jumped into everything, you know, I spent, there was a period of time, maybe six to nine months kind of during the, uh, Bull run when I was reading into altcoins, trying to understand it, just like the spider web of knowledge. Where when you don't know anything about how this works, um, the technological aspects are really interesting. It's like, oh well, Bitcoin uses proof of work. What's proof of stake? What's like, I don't know. There's all these other consensus algorithms I looked into back then. Like there's one called like delegated proof of stake, I think. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I don't really understand it, but it must be superior. Um, and then, you know, I eventually came back around to the idea where I was like, oh, I'm pretty confident in Bitcoin. I was never like, before I jumped into this, I wasn't like a super hardcore maxi or anything. And I'd say I'm still definitely one of the more like moderate, open-minded people, but I'm totally 100% focused on Bitcoin. And I think that, you know, that this is all that matters if we're going to have uh, an immutable base layer to build off a financial system. If you throw that out the window, then none of it matters anymore. Um, but that being said... I, uh, you know, when I was jumping into it, I was like, okay, well, I need to get as deep as I possibly can in Bitcoin and understand all these aspects. And then, you know, I put together like, you know, back then this was 
right before, uh, you know, like right at the beginning of 2020. And um, I put together this curriculum for myself and I, you know, that was just places all over on Twitter, um, different blogs, different books. Uh, I actually didn't read really, and, and there also were a lot less Bitcoin books back then, but I really didn't read many Bitcoin books. The only thing I think I, I think I'd only read Bitcoin standard. Um, there was a textbook by Princeton professor and a few others that was kind of more of a crypto based one that I had read through that was actually really good. Um, there, there was a, a lot of interesting uh, it was called Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technologies. Um, that that was actually really helpful because it was pretty technical, and I like that one. But anyways, there was a lot of different things I wanted to understand. You know, I being a I didn't understand the technology side of the industry that well. Um, I had looked at investments in companies that were you know in different areas of tech, but I wasn't an expert on. You know, I didn't understand computers that well at all, and that was kind of one of the areas that I just needed to like build from the bottom up, get a decent understanding of them, by no means an expert around any of it, but I needed to kind of build up a base layer of knowledge. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get to uh, Jimmy Song's programming Bitcoin book for my understanding of Bitcoin, because in my old job, uh, if I wanted to understand a company that we were going to buy, uh, in, in his background, you know, when I was working in my private equity fund, we were buyout funds. So like what we would do is we'd buy out entire companies. And uh, it's a much more complicated process than just making like a minority investment in something because there's a lot more that you deal with when you own the entire company. So we'd have very technical due diligence around what we were looking to buy. And I had to understand every aspect of the company that we were going to buy. Um, I wanted to apply that same logic to Bitcoin and be like, okay, well, if I'm, you know, I don't want to just be some finance guy who kind of knows some talking points about Bitcoin. I wanted to get deeper on the technical side and really get under the hood and look at the code and be able to interpret that. So I gave myself kind of like a beginner level Python understanding um, before I got into that. And then after I'd read like Mastering Bitcoin and a few other things, I did that. And then I was like, okay, I think I have a pretty good understanding of Bitcoin. I, you know, picked around different, uh, different books around, you know, like Austrian economics, monetary history, monetary theory. Um, you know, like Nick Zabo's writing was instrumental in helping me really get my head around a lot of that. I had like a high level understanding of it before, but I wanted to get deeper. And then the, the big thing, particularly back then that I thought was missing, um, is not a lot of people were really talking there's you know when the bitcoin standard came out people talked about monetary history quite a bit not a lot of people were actually talking about how the banking system works though and i was like this is a huge piece i mean bitcoin solves a fundamental issue with money it also solves the banking system problem and to really understand money today you have to understand how the banking system works without that if we're just talking about primitive forms of money um and how what was valuable about those without understanding what's wrong with our current banking system it's really hard to make a complete argument for bitcoin's value um so i wanted to get deeper into those areas and just reading old federal reserve papers and other um, more kind of like technical reports and um and then yeah after i kind of went through all that i was like look i need to I need to be writing this stuff down i had a bunch of notes but i was like i need to write it down so i can get a better understanding and um and then through that process of just like writing it out, I was like, oh, I could do some blog posts, blah, blah, blah. Started writing a lot. And then I was like, I'm writing so much here that, um, you know, I guess I could just turn this into a book. And that's kind of how it happened. I was like, I mean, I don't know. I think that there's definitely a need for it and anybody can write a book. And then that led me to the idea of like, well, do I self-publish or publish? And I was kind of like, ah, I'd, I'd rather publish it myself, really make it what I want it to be. And um, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, and uh and yeah and that's kind of how it really all started um and I'm trying to remember you had another question too i think i i'm trying to remember it um i don't remember it either but i think okay, cool. i <laughs> that i, I really appreciate it because it, it kind of you know gives a perspective of you know again I, I think there's a lot of millennials in that type of situation where they you know they find themselves like look the reality is man we, we got screwed like we we got the short end of the stick so i think i really appreciated that because it really described your thought process where you came from what your background was and how you fell into the bitcoin rabbit hole and you could actually make an argument that you decided to go backwards you know in terms of you know deciding totally. to move back in with mm -hmm. your mom so that you can kind of pursue your career in Bitcoin. And I think that's fascinating. And I've definitely heard that story many times. But when you were describing all of that, Eric, you mentioned a couple things. And 
I think we're just so used to talking about these things that it's just become default. And it's just like, yeah, that's true. But you mentioned that Bitcoin is the solution to central banking. And that you said that the banking system is a problem and that you can't understand Bitcoin without understanding that the banking system is a problem. And I think those two topics are absolutely fascinating. So what is the problem with central banking? Why is it such a problem? And what is the problem with the current banking system today? And where does Bitcoin fit in all this? Yeah, it, you know, it was, well, when you go through like monetary history and you say like, okay, so we've had like these forms of, you know, effectively commodity money that have existed over time. And they're always kind of naturally chosen by private markets, at least in primitive times, because they had, you know, these fundamental properties that made them good money. And then, you know, governments started to monopolize them and uh, centralized systems of production and storage of those different forms of money. And then a lot of moral hazard kind of ensued from that. Um, so at the historical level, it's uh, even when we had reserves. So like for most of history, we had these reserve based systems that were always backed by some type of commodity, um, particularly like gold and silver during the precious metal era. And when, you know, the the key issue is really the agency problem. And the way that I kind of talk about this in my book is that you know, the agency problem, uh, you know, well-known problem in economics that if you are a principal and you hire an agent to do something for you and that agent has a conflict of interest with you, then they're ultimately going to take advantage and there's, it's going to result in moral hazard, which, you know, we hear that term all the time. And, uh, and, you know, I think a good way of thinking about it is that if you were to hire a courier to go deliver a message for you and you just had some legal documents associated with something that really only matters to you. They're not really valuable to anybody else. And you say, okay, I'm going to pay you guys a hundred bucks. Um, they're going to deliver it. You can be reasonably certain they're going to deliver it. But if you change that to a bag of, you know, a hundred million dollars, then you're probably never going to see them again. Um, and that's where that conflict of interest resides. And one of the aspects of money that I define in my book is that money is kind of defined as the most saleable good. It's the good that people want most often more than anything else. If a genie came to you and was like, hey, I'll give you, you know, an infinite amount of anything, you'd say, well, I want, I want money because um, I can trade that for anything else. It's highly saleable. So because money is the most saleable good, it's more subject to moral hazard than anything else. And, you know, that's why we've seen the amount of fraud, the amount of moral hazard that's emerged. That's why, you know, the financial markets have become the most uh, regulated industry in the world. It's because it has the highest degree of moral hazard. And to give anyone control over it results in problems, whether it's your government, whether it's, you know, any sort of private enterprise. There's always that conflict of interest that exists with it. And um, so with banking systems, we always saw problems around that. Much of it was solved with regulations, but the fact that we always trusted government to solve those problems. Um, if you look at history, you can see that governments ultimately ended up whenever they would mm -hmm. be given control by a society over their money. They'd say, hey, look, the private markets are taking advantage of you. Let us control it. And then subsequently, the governments would ultimately do the exact same thing because yep. they still have the same conflict of interest. And uh, and when you fast forward to how our current banking system works today, um, we took that to the furthest extreme when we removed ourselves as a, when we were a global monetary standard um, and the dollar removed itself in 1971 from being backed by gold. And now we, we pushed it all the way from being pure commodity money-based systems all the way to the dollar is purely just debt. Um, dollars are created when the government issues any sort of debt. And uh, that is, as well as not just a government but private banking system as well. Whenever debt is issued, that's how we effectively create new money and push it into the system. And uh, so that understanding is really critical because we have to understand how we really have two different types of money that have existed throughout history. We have commodity-based monies and we have credit-based monies. And credit money effectively if you think about it as money or you can conceptualize it just as credit credit was what existed as money between people before we actually had commodity-based monies emerge um, people had to trust that somebody else would pay them back in the future in the future um, so it's you know understanding that credit is distinct from commodity-based monies in the way that we perceive them because commodity-based money allows us to take 
work that we've done in the past, any sort of value we've created, and it allows us to bring it forward to the future. And that's being a good store of value. Credit's actually the opposite of that. It allows us to take expected value created in the future and bring it to the present so that we can spend it today in some form. So it's actually the opposite way of doing it. And there's actually some sort of balance that really needs to exist between both of these things within an economy. And when we had you know a pure commodity based system of money without any credit at all it would be very hard for businesses to start let's say you want to start something that requires you know a hundred million dollars to get going um it's possible that it could all be done by getting people to invest in your company and, and through equity it's it's theoretically possible but that takes a huge incentive away from an entrepreneur because they say, oh, I'm gonna have to sell my entire company ownership just to get finance to make this thing happen. What if I could actually not give up the ownership and I could fix the cost of that and then pay that back in the future? And like, that's kind of the purpose of that demand for credit is that we need to be able to fix that liability so that once our company becomes very valuable, we can pay that off, it's fixed. It's not just gonna be this perpetual, that's what equity is, is a perpetual liability as you grow that you continually have to pay back to people. So it, it is valuable in that sense. And it's important to have within an economy. But when you understand what we've done today, and we've taken our money itself, turned it into credit, has no more commodity backing at all. And it's completely pure credit. And we've taken that natural proportion of, you know, commodity money and credit, and we've pushed it all the way to the furthest end of the spectrum of this is just all credit now. And and there's huge costs that we're paying in society because of that and uh, the amount of malinvestment and, you know, Austrian economists, this is, you know, fundamental to the theory is that um, when you incentivize credit beyond a natural rate, that um, that's going to result in significant malinvestment. We see that all the time. We, you know, the industries that I came from and the companies I work for, we specialized in buying companies that were declining in some form um, or, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy. So like a lot of the industries I was looking at were a lot of these older kind of zombie company in, in industries where um, you would see how these guys stay afloat and why these industries exist. And most of these guys were staying afloat because they just had very cheap credit. They could keep borrowing and rolling over and, you know, pushing their death knell a few more years out. And, um, and you see that everywhere within the economy. And that's what we've done when we've created this exorbitant amount of credit and all these perverse incentives and all these companies exist that probably shouldn't even exist. Um, whereas all that labor and capital that exists, that's being, directed towards these, uh, you know, low demand type companies because of credit should be getting directed towards something that's much more valuable for people today. Um, and, and that's kind of like, you know, at a very high level, that's kind of the idea. Um, and, you know, for the purposes of my book, when I was writing it, it I, I geared it a bit more towards people with like a finance background and really just making the, the investment thesis for Bitcoin very clear. Um, and you know, I think that it's really important to understand how the banking system works because you have to understand how it's created um, and ultimately how that creates these incentives within the supply. So if you just understand commodity money and say money is good, it should be this. Um, this was better than what's happening today. It's, I feel like it's a bit of an incomplete understanding because you have to say, like, okay, well, here's how money actually works today. And then you can really contrast that with all the issues that emerge and how commodity money should be a much bigger piece of it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a general idea. So you said something really interesting and it was fascinating, right? It's that the, and honestly, to put it simply, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Eric, it's it's really an engineering problem in terms of, because it's like, look, like with in terms of the moral hazard issue, right? If you leave it to the financial industry, tremendous amount of moral hazard, you have to kind of outsource that to the government. And the government finds itself abusing the system to benefit themselves. Um, and I think that is that the reason that your book is called The Seventh Property? Because at the end of the day, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is rules without rulers, and it kind of allows the system to exist and to kind of tie it in with what you're talking about just now in terms of commodity money and credit money. The fact is that governments are not incentivized to allow their citizens or a lot of people that live under them to use commodity money, as in the case in the 1930s with FDR 6102, right? It's, it's bad news for, for governments, the nation state, the modern nation state. 
right? Yep. So here comes Bitcoin and it's this giant FU for, you know, lack of another expression. And it just protects the individual where the individual wouldn't have that protection. So is this kind of the balance that you're talking about? Are you making the case that fiat will exist in a hyper Bitcoinized world? It will just Bitcoin will kind of always be that check on power type of thing. Yeah, so I'm I'm not making the case that I think fiat will exist. And actually, this is a big distinction that I think um, is people need to understand in the industry that I often see kind of being misconstrued. But it's like, well, what it, what is fiat? What is fractional reserve? What is credit? Um, and I think a lot of people throw the idea of credit into the bucket of fiat. And it's it's that's not really what it is. I mean, credit in the broadest term is any form of like deferred payment. Now that can happen in a legally enforceable way, or that can happen in just a private way. Like that could be, you know, you go to a bar one night and the bartender's like, Hey, what do you want? And you're like, Oh, take a beer. Oh, I forgot my wallet. He's like, here, I'll give you one. You pay me back the mm-hmm. next time. And then, you know, that, that's at the most basic sense. And then, you know, there's legally enforceable contracts that allow you to do something similar. And that could be without money even being involved. That could be like a working capital account within a company. If you have um, on your uh, accounts receivable, you could say, hey, give me 60 days instead of 30 um, to pay you back. And they'll say, sure. And that increases the amount of credit within the system. So like that's kind of just like a basic form of credit without actually having a monetary what, transaction involved. But wouldn't yeah, you ahead. say the issuance of money the way that governments do it today is a form of credit. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll break down that point. Um, it basically, so like that, that's credit that will always, the two areas that it's described, like that's credit that will always exist in some form. Um, and I guess the best way to describe that is that because economic resources, uh, when, when you, for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs have to plan for the future. They have to anticipate what the world wants. And when they do that, they have to, in order to accommodate whatever that is, they have to have a certain scale of capital to achieve that today in order to make it happen tomorrow. And credit enables that to occur. Now, people will say in a Bitcoin system, we're going to have a lot less credit. And they completely agree uh, because people are going to have a lot more wealth from savings. There's probably going to be a greater incentive to equity finance in a lot of ways. Um, But nonetheless, the idea of I don't have enough savings to finance this economic venture that I'm expecting will be valuable in the future. Credit facilitates the ability to achieve the scale to where you can actually go after that. So like that's kind of like a fundamental role that it does within the economy. Um, The question is, is, okay, well, I just described like how credit would emerge kind of in a private way. And then how does that credit actually exist? And within a system like a banking system or even just a system of we can use a broader term and just say credit intermediaries, the idea of I'm going to make a loan to somebody, um, not everybody can do that on their own. It's actually a really technical process. How do I, you know, what's the purpose of the loan? How do I assess this person is not a credit risk to me? Will I get my money back? So it's something that people specialize in. And we have intermediaries that say, okay, if you have savings and you would like to earn a rate of return on those um, and take some risk, then give us your money and we're going to assess counterparties that are going to, you know, we can make loans to that are going to earn a rate of interest. Um, And if they're good at that and they are successful and they don't take on too much risk, then that system sustains and it performs a really key function because now these loans are going out. And they're not just going out um, by everybody doing it themselves, but it's by a specific group who has specialized knowledge that allows them to effectively do that better than other people would. But, but and, hold, uh, on, hold on a second, because uh, so I, I, I see the finance background, bro. It's coming out. Um, <laughs> so um, Parker Lewis wrote this awesome piece is called The Great Definancialization, mm-hmm. right? And he was basically making the argument that Bitcoin fixes the part-time investor problem where let's say I'm a plumber or I'm a painter and you know, you're making over a hundred thousand dollars a year and you just maintain your value. You just want to maintain your value. You're forced to either store your, your value in, in real estate, which is why the real estate market's so inflated or in equities, you know, you could also make the case the commodities, right? But Bitcoin, you no longer need to become that part-time investor. You could just start, saving in Bitcoin. So what you're just describing just now, isn't that part of the old system? Or do you believe in 
Uh, you believe that credit will be necessary in the future just for entrepreneurs to function, just for you know new businesses to rise. And then it's actually interesting because I forget who it was that came on the show. Oh, it was um, it was Vijay Poyapati, right? And I asked him a, v- a very similar question. I said, you know, that's the kind of the idea that the Keynesians have, right? This idea that Austrian economics will never work out because people are not incentivized to spend their money, right? Um, so what what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that it, it's a great point. And I think that, the, so like what you were just talking about, that is the reason that credit will be so much less than it is today. Like what I was talking about earlier, we've had credit get pushed all the way to this crazy extreme. There is actually a natural market rate that like there's demand for credit in a natural, if you think about it theoretically, if the fiat system were removed and we were on a Bitcoin standard, what amount of credit would people actually want? And to address your point around, well, now that people can, we have a deflationary form of savings. We have this currency that gains value over time. So why would I just go invest in real estate or something when it's continuing to gain value? And I think the best way to understand that is that if we get to a hyper Bitcoinized world, we have this, uh, you know, we're on a global Bitcoin standard. It's money for everything. Well, Bitcoin's appreciated for very significantly over time. Everybody who owns a lot of Bitcoin is going to be a very wealthy person. Um, if we get to that point in the world, Bitcoin is going to have like a deflationary rate. And that's going to be, um, it's going to be some amount, you know, let's call it say 5%. Every year, you know, you're going to gain 5%. But now, like right now, Bitcoin's price goes up because it's capturing market share. Um, once it captures that entire market, its price isn't going to go up from that anymore because the markets of money, you know, effectively is saturated. Now it only goes up from whatever that natural rate of deflation is. And that's the difference between the change in its supply every year. So it's going to have nearly zero inflation. Um, and then how much productivity is increasing within a given year. So the cheaper that we make things for people, Bitcoin being fixed is going to appreciate kind of at that rate. And so, you know, it's, it's a very theoretical idea. We don't really know exactly what that rate's going to be. But nonetheless, there's people who say, okay, so let's say I'm running 5% a year on Bitcoin. Um, that's savings. And that's the purpose of savings. That's the real idea of savings. But people don't just want to save their money. People want to earn a greater rate of return. People want to take risk. People want to understand that I could be employing this money into something that mm-hmm. is creating economic value. And um, and that'll be the distinction is that the way it is today, because our savings, uh, we lose money over time. Well, we're employing it in everything because it's like everybody says, like, don't hold in cash. You don't want to do that. You have to have it some form of investing. That whole idea is going to go away. They're going to say, oh, I want to save. This is awesome. I like this. I'm only going to invest it in something that I really deem to be a valuable economic project. And that's why credit will shrink massively because of that incentive. But it doesn't mean that it's really going to go away. It just means it's going to change and its proportion is going to be so much smaller. Um, So uh, I'm trying to remember what else. uh... So first of all, Eric, that that was fascinating. I, I really, I really, really appreciated that, that explanation. And um, having VJ, having yourself, and I'm starting to understand a lot of these. Com- Again, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a content guy. I'm a media guy. So I really appreciate that. Um, you said something, though, that was really interesting, right? Which is, and I agree with you, the theory of diminishing returns, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how long until it gets to that point? Are we talking about, you know, FOSS has this idea where, you know, Bitcoin captures 5, 10% of the global worth. Mm-hmm global, you know, wealth that it's between, I think it's like two to $5 million, something like that. How long until this happened? Is this decades? Um, are we under pressure? Should people be stacking like crazy right now? Because in 20 years, you know, Bitcoin's only going to be a 5% appreciating asset. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is, you know, at the end of the day, I have no idea. Uh, but I think that, um, I guess if I were to try to break it down, what i think will cause it to take some time and when i say you know what that is is when bitcoin is let's say effectively saturated the market for money and the world's on a a global bitcoin standard um there's a lot of goods and services that are not goods but there's a lot of well i guess technically there's a lot of technology 
and services that need to be built that will support a Bitcoin standard effectively uh, in order for us to get there. And that will probably be a significant timeline similar to how long it took for all the architecture of the internet to build out. Um, it wasn't just TCP IP, it wasn't just HTTPS, but it was also, well, we need a lot of these base layer functions. We need web browsers to emerge and be widely adopted. And then we need applications to exist. There's this entire ecosystem that has to build out. And right now, Bitcoin, and there's a lot of time and effort being spent building it out on alternatives. And, you know, what if all that time and effort was happening in, on Bitcoin, which I, I think it's kind of an interesting way to think about it, just because um, I look at a lot of crypto is I think one of the benefits to Bitcoin is a lot of it's like R&D um, that I eventually see is going to flow into Bitcoin. And, you know, the sad, I think the tragedy is that consumers are really paying the price for that R&D. Um, but I view it as a way that there's there's valuable ideas and concepts that emerge on it that are ultimately going to be replicated in some protocol on top of Bitcoin or potentially some application in the future. And we can look at that ecosystem and learn from what's good and what's bad. Um, but I think that as this all builds out, um, it all is going to build out on one standard and effectively have to get to a large scale to be able to, you know, support the throughput uh, and the consumer adoption of the global economy. That's going to take a long time. I mean, just like a very tangible point is the uh, there's kind of a bottleneck in lightning adoption. If we tried to onboard, you know, billions of people to lightning tomorrow, each one of those people would require an on-chain transaction. Um, that could be confirmed you know within a block period and if you add up all the numbers of actually getting everybody on as a single user through an on-chain transaction it would take years just to get them online so like it, obviously it's not going to happen in that way um but there's a lot of things where it's like okay if, we, if this were to happen in the next five years like we probably wouldn't be ready yet uh but and then just basic consumer applications education all these things that take a lot of time are going to need to happen and that could be decades you know um and you know on top of that then it comes down to how is it going to be constrained from a regulatory angle and how are these companies going to be constrained are there going to be any sort of significant um issues that ultimately set the industry back a significant period of time you know let's say worst case scenario um you know g7 economies are all like let's shut this thing down it's gotten too big we, we we can't let this happen and then we're like okay well the game theory works out because now that money is just going to flow to developing economies and all the developing economies have a very strong incentive to want to attract capital and gain power and become significant themselves um so there's going to always be some sort of fertile environment but it's going to be a lot harder to make that all happen you know that could set the industry back a very long period of time so I think that depending on how that builds out and how the incentives work, um, that could extend the timeline. My bet, I'm betting on decades. Um, you know, in a recent research report, I kind of put it down like the year like 2050. I think we could be getting pretty close to it. And uh, that, that'll probably be enough time for a lot of the ecosystem and infrastructure to get built out. But if there's anything I'm wrong about all the time in this industry, it's how quickly things happen. Um, I remember jumping into this and thinking like, oh, you know, like I remember when I was jumping into this and I'm like, well, look, like the Winklevoss twins are on CNBC right now. Like that's good for Bitcoin. <laughs> and it's like now it's just like it's a, it's such an irrelevant thing. Bitcoin's on a global scale. I wouldn't have guessed that we'd get to where we are as quickly as we have. So um, we could be pleasantly surprised by its adoption. I'm actually a little worried about the adoption happening too quickly because of the reaction of you, know, mm. you said a G7 countries, right? Yeah. Um, the reality is that a lot of these countries, you know, um, I'm going to use your words now that I learned, um, benefit tremendously from being able to issue free credit, basically. Right. And they're able to pay their own bureaucracies, their own administrative states. Right. And that power that comes from that monopoly, you know, on the issuance of money is something that I just don't think they're just going to give up. Like, hey, here you go. You know, here are the keys. You guys are awesome. Innovation. This is great. Like, they're not going to do that. And I think that, you know, you see the language. Nick Carter did an excellent job just like kind of debunking, you know, the digital assets framework that was released by the, the White House. Yep. Um, but you kind of see this aggression. And if it happens too quickly, 
I see them just pushing back hard. But if it becomes like this grassroots movement where individuals are starting to ask like very basic questions, why are you forcing me to use the money that's designed to lose value? What is legal tender laws? Why is this treasury getting to dictate who is entitled to use money, who's not entitled to use money? They're not even elected. They're appointed. What is going on here? And, you know, these are all things that, you know, the mainstream consciousness is still asleep to the theft that is going on, you know? And I think that unless they wake up before the powers that be push back, I think Bitcoiners, of course, you know, we could all, Bitcoin gives you the power to vote with your wallet and vote with your feet. We could all move to El Salvador, but a lot of us in the United States would rather not want to move to El Salvador, you know? So I agree with you, man. What are your thoughts on the recent movements, treasury um, sanctioned open source software? First time in its history. It's never done that before. It's always mm-hmm. been individuals and countries. What are your thoughts on the digital assets framework by the White House, uh, New York State banning proof of work mining? What are your thoughts on this? Is this just a natural? This is the separation of money and state. This is the state kind of in its last death throw saying, no, I'm not going to go. You know, we're still in charge. What, what's going on? What are your thoughts on all this, Eric? Yeah, I think, look, and I'll caveat this with I'm not a regulatory expert. I could be saying, making comments about this that are totally naive. Um, but I think that, you know, there's good precedent that was set with Phil Zimmerman and PGP encryption back in, um, uh, that was the 90s. Uh, yeah, well, I might be wrong about that. Maybe it was the 80s. I can't remember. But um and there's good precedent set for CODIS free speech, and that's a strong form of argumentation. And I'm, I'm optimistic about how, um, you know, our rights can be protected from that. But I, you know, I, to your point, I kind of view this as, uh, I don't view it as any sort of a last, um, you know, last ditch effort by governments to try to stop something. I think that they're just getting started. And I think that they're testing the waters. Um, I, it, it's interesting. I mean, I could kind of pontificate about this for a while and I just don't have a lot of certainty, but um, I think that there's a, there's a high probability um, that, you know, some of the, there, there's, there's a high probability that this could be, this could be the start that ultimately um hurts bitcoin domestically in a significant way um i think that the best thing probably that could benefit us in this situation like some people have this take on the industry um where they're like no we need to be lobbying we need to get the government behind it i get it it's like yeah might as well um do i think that ultimately that time and effort spent on that angle is going to come to fruition um and I just think that when the incentive is far too strong and the best case scenario is that a lot of major service providers and companies are co-opted by the government in some form and it gets allowed to exist as like Bitcoin TM. Um, I think the best thing that can really happen is that we have development in economies that are either contrary to the U.S.'s interests and are willing to act outside of um you know, the willing to act outside of the U.S. interest um, or they're, you know, developing enough to where they can, um, they're not as significant to the U.S. at the current period of time. So if we have a bunch of El Salvador's pop up all around the world and that actually in aggregate forms this pretty material economy, um, that is the, I think that that's a great defense mechanism because all the U.S. is concerned about what's the escape valve. And if we already have a large enough threat in place for where the capital is going to move through permissionless payment rails um, and where the industry can ultimately move, um, that will probably be the greatest deterrence to the U.S. ultimately accepting the fee in the long term. And, you know, that that's just going to be such an incredibly complicated thing. And that's what I love about Bitcoin is because their one form of control they would have over these economies is what is itself being undermined through that adoption. Um, 
So it takes quite a bit of power away from the U.S. outside of, you know, becoming a belligerent nation. And, um, and they, they, they just wouldn't have a strong incentive to do that. So I think that that's the best thing that could probably happen that would deter it. Um, I'm not against people in the industry trying to go at it from every angle and see how it works. It's not like anybody really knows how any of this is going to pan out. Um, but I'd say that's kind of how I'm looking at it. Yeah, and I 100% agree. I think the, and this is something we say all the time, it's like if the Office of Foreign Asset Control, Department of Treasury that's responsible for sanctions, starts putting pressure on industrial miners, you know, censoring certain blocks, pools in Russia and Venezuela aren't going to give to flying yeah. Fs. You know, what the hell those American mining pools do? And, you know, you have, it's funny, you you have Iran and you have Russia saying, hey, we are going to use Bitcoin for international payment. It's not because those governments are good, but they're trying to find a way to circumvent current U.S. sanction policy, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, the the game theory to this is fascinating. And, and in the meantime, while all these countries, well, specifically the United States, is trying to hold on to power, individuals are benefiting from this tremendously. But I have a soft spot for the U.S., and... I think what I've realized kind of making content over the time, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that really what's required in the U.S. is not lobbying politicians. It's a waste of time. What's, mm. what's required in the U.S. is grassroots and getting the ideas and principles of Bitcoin into the mainstream consciousness. These ideas yep. have already been incepted, like you said. You talk to someone in Turkey talk to someone in Nigeria, you talk to someone in Argentina and you're the under the age of 40 and you say Bitcoin, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, pay me. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. I love that. That That's better than whatever fiat currency I have. But Alex Gladstein wrote, wrote this phenomenal book called Financial Privilege. He's talking about this, right? Is that in the developing world, I mean, developed world, we've had the luxury of having these relatively stable fiat currencies that don't steal from you enough for you to really notice that it's just bred a lot of complacency here. And unless that complacency is completely broken, I don't, I think that the U.S. government's just going to get away with it. The central bank digital currencies, stimulus money for everyone. Here you go. Put your yep. social security number ID into this app. You'll get it tomorrow. And a lot of people think, like, yeah, this is great. This is phenomenal. You know, so I, I think that unless that happens, I mean, that could also kind of be incentivized. I mean, look, Eric, what do you think? Because the reality is that we haven't had inflation in our lifetime, the levels that we have right now, Right. What if we have 10 years? What if we have an era like the 1970s, the stock market went sideways, crazy inflation, mm-hmm. kind of hostilities all over the world? Do you think that's enough to wake up enough of the NPCs to the reality that this fiat money is a scam? And the reason I'm asking you this question is because you come from the traditional financial world. I have six friends that have orange pilled. The seventh friend works for Goldman. He's part of wealth management. It's been seven years, I've been six years, I've been telling him about this, and he still doesn't believe in Bitcoin. And I asked Greg Foss as to why that is, and he's like, Nico, it's because they pay him not to understand. And I thought that was a phenomenal answer. So what are your thoughts on this, man? When are those finance guys finally going to budge and they're going to finally <laughs> see the writing on the wall and like, okay, you know, maybe we we give this thing a shot? Yeah, um, I think... So yeah, when are the finance guys going to budge? So what was huge this year, and I included this in a research piece I did back in May, um, and it was talking about what's going on in like the global sovereign reserve economy, and as well as just like, you know, what makes the US dollar the global reserve? Like, how does that effectively happen? And why do countries want dollars so badly? Um, And I I, kind of walked through that. And at what point I cover the reports that were written by Zoltan Pozar, who's a very well-known research analyst out of Credit Suisse. And it was huge because when was this? I think it was, this was right at the end of February. Um, We had the Russian sanctions occur. um, And it was, you know, we know the U.S. government had never really quite gone to this length with this significant an economy before. and in this thought piece that Zoltan put out, he was just like, well, we've 
materially undermine kind of this idea of like, what are the property rights that you have when you hold dollars? And that's probably going to be setting up a ripple effect around the world. Um, and then when you pair that with supply shortages, he's like, this could significantly undermine what's happening in global currency markets. And we are starting to see that. Um, and, you know, like the financial world that's uh, referred to as this trend of multipolarity, um, where, you know, we've been living in this unipolar mm. world around one currency and one dominant force in the U.S. is the policer of the world and we have the power. And what we do is we say, we'll give you guys U.S. dollars. Um, you guys use those for your trade at an international level. And we're going to protect your trade routes and we're going to use our military power to make sure that your life goes well. And that's how they really got a lot of adoption of the U.S. dollar globally. So, I mean, if you like for people who want to know why the U.S. was really adopted as the global reserve, it's because we were the most powerful country and we could trade our military force and protection to countries who want to, you know, use our economic interest of dollars. Um, and and that was a really key piece, because what happens when you're a country and you see the U.S. sanction that? And you say, oh, so if I kind of fall out of line with something, then a lot of my reserve assets or the currency that I'm using could take a significant hit in value or I can be restricted. Now, obviously, what Russia is doing is, you know, belligerent, but um, it is something that's signaling to the rest of the world, hey, maybe we're not as safe as we thought we were in the system. The U.S. is going to much further lengths than we anticipated. Um what else could we use? What can we hold as a fail safe other than dollars? And and I think that this kind of a narrative is something that's probably going to bring in a lot of institutional capital in the in the nearest term, um, because you know what I wrote in the paper is like, look, the dollar is so deeply entrenched at this point that it's not even about the military protection of such a system. It's um it's about the fact that we've already made it the medium of exchange. Everything's you know trades denominated in dollars, and that's why people want it as a reserve asset in the first place. So because all these contracts are already set up and these systems are already set up, it's going to take a very long time for all of that to structurally change so that we can utilize alternatives. And you know the economies like Russia and China that have the greatest interest, they've been making leaps towards that and they're continuing to make leaps towards that and they are de-dollarizing. And you know before Russia made all these decisions, they were one of the largest gold reserves in the world. Um, and they had been doing that for a long period of time and because they knew what was going to happen. Um, so that narrative that we're shifting kind of from this U.S. dominated monetary system into multiple systems, a lot of people think like, oh, like China, they're going to take over. They're the strongest military force. So it'll just shift to them. And really, the incentives are kind of more aligned so that it's going to be a lot of different uh, systems that will probably emerge. And uh, that's going to take a long period of time. I think gold will actually probably benefit a lot from that in the near term. But I think long term what we're going to see is well what's the advantage that bitcoin has over gold you can permissionlessly transact it um and you know it has the same scarcity on par and the custodial operations require so much less trust so it makes way more sense as a reserve asset the problem that it has is it's not liquid enough so and obviously like bitcoin is a large liquid market from our perspective but if you're a sovereign nation um you know you're dealing in the most liquid markets for assets in the world we're talking u.s treasuries and we're talking gold i mean i think gold is the fifth most liquid market in the world and that's not in terms of settlement costs that's a different thing but in terms of liquidity your ability to buy and sell significant amounts um that won't move the price of the market gold is very good at that it actually costs a lot to move and to actually make your transactions occur but that's a little bit different bitcoin is um still lacking on the liquidity side, although settlement costs are a lot less. Um, so the Bitcoin market needs to grow more, but that's that that's one of those suddenly moments that I think I see coming in Bitcoin is if Bitcoin gets to a $10 trillion market cap, um, then I think that we could see a very significant amount of sovereign institutions that start to adopt it. Um, and start conducting trade and systems upon it. So that kind of goes back to my point from earlier. We need to have things set up so that that can happen and it can go well. And um, and so, yeah, anyways, that, that's kind of what I see is like one of the major drivers of institutional adoption. Once enough's in place, and let's say, you know, Bitcoin is at three trillion market cap and we're in a, you know, financial crisis like we pretty much are right now. We're in a recession. Um, 
if we get that decoupling event and Bitcoin does continue to grow, a lot of institutions are going to look. I think that we'll start to see more smaller economies who have the greatest incentive to use Bitcoin as a reserve because it's permissionless. Um, if we start to see more of them adopt it, I think the narrative in an institutional investor's mind is really going to form like, let's get ahead of this thing. This thing ain't done. This thing's going to keep running. And um, and then we start to see the U.S. flow into it a lot more. Um, and a lot of major capital providers and the private side of things start to invest. And that's that kind of suddenly moment. Do you ever see the U.S. government holding Bitcoin on its reserves? Or is that just a concession? Is that like, we lost. Here's a thing. Let's put it on our balance sheet. And it, it's very symbolic as well. Do you ever envision a world where that happens? And Kind of if you apply a little bit of game theory to it, the only reason as to why they would do that is because they would have no other option but to do that. Yeah, I think um, and th this goes back to your point earlier. I think, yeah, that's probably a very likely scenario. I think to your point earlier, though, uh, education and grass grassroots movements, what I love um about over the past year, basically, is the amount of state level representatives who started to support Bitcoin mm -hmm. and how quickly that's been growing. Um, and that we have, you know, the most dominant political news channel that's actively bringing on advocates of Bitcoin. Um, I don't know how long that's going to last, but I, it's certainly true that it's been gaining traction at the low, with lower level politicians. Um, so it could be, I think it's kind of parallel to the idea that and this is what I love about the system the founding fathers set up, but it's parallel to the idea where we're like, okay, well, if these smaller economies all adopt it, then we're going to kind of force the big guys to eventually opt into it. It's kind of similar. It's like if we get so much grassroots support at like a state level, state level, mm -hmm. potentially it could force the incentives. I mean, every politicians need to get elected. And if there gets enough support, there is enough education of people are like, hell yeah, there's so much shit wrong with this. We're in a recession. We've had these idiots that have been just printing money and manipulating our currencies and putting us all, you know, destroying our wealth at the same time. We've lost from every single angle now. And when we get into that situation, um, the state, you know, there's going to be tons of politicians who have an incentive to say, I could get elected if I support this. You know, that's the number one political issue that people have is inflation right now. And if that grows enough, um, that could create just kind of like this domestic incentive structure. Um, and thank God we live in a state level system that could potentially have it happen internally within the U.S. But I think that's still very optimistic thinking. I, I think, you know, and we're we're just about wrapping up. Um Yes, I 100% agree. I think Wyoming, Texas, perhaps Tennessee, um, and I say those states because those are the states that Bitcoiners have the most amount of political influence. Um, the moment a state takes Bitcoin, puts it on its balance sheet, it's game over. That state's yeah. going to have so much sovereignty over the federal government um, because a lot of these states depend on all that, you know, that, that fiat coming in. But now that kind of gives us, uh, it's like, uh, kind of pulls in El Salvador. Look, we use the U.S. dollar. It's great, but mm -hmm. fuck you, Fed. We are kind of doing, making our own rules now. Um, right. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. I think that way before the federal level, definitely a state level adoption. And I, I think that's spot on. Anyways, Eric, um, I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot. Um, really appreciate it. It's one of my favorite conversations I've had in a long time. Um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and, uh, what you're working on these days? Yeah, just follow me on Twitter. It's, uh, my full name and, um, you know, I got a website, you can kind of pick through my blog and look at some of the stuff I've been writing. A lot of my, um, a lot of my writing has been just around like, what will banking systems look like? What will credit look like? Kind of getting into that theory as well as like practical applications of how that could emerge on the lightning network. Um, that reserve piece I was talking about, the international game theory, I, I wrote a long form piece on that too. That's all on there. Um, you can check out my book. It's on Amazon. It's called The Seventh Property. Um, and it's also just linked on my Twitter. So if you want to find anything about me, just look at my Twitter handle. I got it kind of all linked on my page with my website. Um, and yeah, Nico, it was a blast, man. I had a great time in this conversation. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Uh, learned a lot. Like last time you came on, it's a pleasure, man. I'm going to put you backstage and I'm going to roll out the intro to take about 15 seconds. See you guys. See you guys later for a regular episode. Simply Bitcoin, IRL, 12.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you later.
which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay, what's the second best? There is no second best.